All right, well, with that, we're going to uh, turn to our study in Titus and continue. We're almost done our study of this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote around AD 64 uh, to his delegate on the island of Crete, his delegate Titus, who had been with him as the Apostle Paul had organized, planted churches there upon the preaching of the gospel on that island in the Mediterranean. And Paul had to leave early, leaving Titus with the responsibility of setting in order what still remained. And part of the setting in order what remained was to instruct the church in a lot of fundamentals of church life. And we've been going through that over the last uh, eight months or so as we've been going through this letter and seeing the riches uh, in this particular letter, only three chapters, but some excellent instruction for us on all kinds of matters. And we come now to a closing section, really the last instruction that the Apostle Paul leaves with Titus dealing with a a very difficult issue, and that is the issue of factions and factious men. And so the title of our sermon this morning is Responding to Factions and the Factious. Uh, This is part of what Titus needed to hear based on what was going on in the Cretan churches. It's as we're going to see what we need to hear for today, that the Lord treats factions and the factious with a very serious approach, as is indicated through the instruction that we'll see in chapter 3, verses 9 through 11. As we turn there, we read these verses. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies, and strife, and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. We can see here that in this instruction, as Paul brings the letter to a close, that this is a serious issue for Paul, the issue of church unity and the danger, the threat that division and strife posed for those new churches on the island of Crete. So we want to go through this instruction carefully this morning and see its, its applicability to us today because this remains for us an authoritative word which is to remind all of us, even if we are not factious per se, as we will see, the tendency towards strife is within us all. And so this instruction is very important for us as well. As we go through this, we're going to see Paul's two key commands that he gives here. The first is in verse 9, and we're going to call it this, the right response to factions, the right response to factions. And Paul builds this off of the key verb there, avoid. The key imperative, avoid. That's the right response to factions. And then in verses 10 and 11, we're going to see the right response to the factious, to those who create the factions. And we're going to see how Paul builds it upon the key imperative there at the beginning of verse 10, reject. So there's two key actions that 
are part of this response, one at the beginning of verse 9, one at the beginning of verse 10, and all of Paul's thoughts revolve around these two responses, one to the problem of factions and the other to the problem of factious people. And again, as I said, it reminds us of the importance of unity and uh, the very the very serious attitude we are to take towards those who, in one way or another, seek to divide the people of God. I like what J.C. Ryle stated as he summarized the importance of unity and the danger of factions when he said this, the cause of sin is never so much helped as when Christians waste their strength in quarreling with one another and spend their time in petty squabbles. That statement really summarizes well, it paraphrases, you could say, what Paul is getting at in Titus chapter 3, verses 9 through 11. So let's look at the first response that Paul prescribes in verse 9, and he begins by saying this, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law. Now, at the beginning of this, you have this contrasting conjunction, but, and it helps set this instruction in contrast to what he has just said. And if you remember from our previous studies, we spent several weeks in the first part of chapter 3 as we looked at that great soteriological statement that is surrounded by these statements of how we must now live in a fallen world, a world of unbelievers. And and in verse 8, the verse that immediately precedes this instruction, Paul wrote this. He said, this is a trustworthy statement. And that refers to verses 4 to 7, that great soteriological statement that Paul made to to, to Titus to help remind the Cretan believers of what God has done for them. He said, this is a trustworthy statement. And then he goes on to say this, and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently, speaking of verses 1 through 8, speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. And then he summarizes that and says this, these things are good and profitable for men. And he's speaking there of the church's right response to an unbelieving world the virtues that he describes in verses 1, 2, and 3, and then again in verse 8 of doing good deeds, that these things are profitable. They're good for men. They're good for the world to see. This is important. And so in light of what he has just said, Paul contrasts that with the problem of strife. He sets the contrast in this way, saying, when you follow these virtues, this is good for the world, for the world to see, but when you enter into strife, these things are harmful. These things are damaging. In fact, we can see that Paul's concern in this instruction, as it has been throughout the entire letter, is for the health of the church and its general witness in a watching world. Just go back to chapter 2. Remember what he said in, in verse 5, after he gave instructions concerning young women, he, he, he called upon older women to teach the younger women 
a certain way of life. Why? So that the word of God will not be dishonored. And then a a few verses later in verse 8, after he's dealt with the young men, he said this, he said that they should live this way. Why? So that the opponent, the critics of the gospel, the critics of the church, they're on the island of Crete, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. And then in verse 10, a similar purpose statement as Paul deals there with the, uh, the instructions given to slaves, he said, they are to live this way, why? So that they will adorn the doctrine of, our God, of, of God our Savior in every respect. So we can see that Paul is concerned both for the internal health of the church and their ability to live in a way that pleases the Lord and excels in that, but he's also concerned that they would live this way for the sake of the gospel, that there would be a, a missionary mindset to the motivation for why they live the way they do. And that's the same as we get here in Titus 3 and why Paul creates this contrast after he has just said those things in verse 8. These things are good and profitable for all men. He immediately then switches to the problem of strife because the problem of strife in the church where strife exists is not good and profitable for men. Thomas Manton said this, divisions in the world always breed atheism, excuse me, uh, divisions in the church always breed atheism in the world. Divisions in the church always breed atheism in the world. Uh, 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 A right response there to, to, to what it does when the church and people in the church, those who profess to be followers of Christ, can't stand each other and create all kinds of disunity and factions among each other. Far cry from what Jesus said when he called upon his disciples to let the world know that you are mine by how you love one another. Now, when we come back to his instruction then, when Paul says this at the beginning of verse 9, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, it's important to notice this. This, this verb here is, is key. It's the chief word of the sentence, the, the word avoid. And actually in the original, in order to emphasize this verb, Paul actually puts it at the end of the clause. It really reads this, but foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, avoid. By placing it there, Paul puts all the spotlight on this particular verb. And so it's important for us to understand what he means in this instruction, in this command. And this verb essentially means to go around so as to avoid. It means to circumvent is the most literal way uh, of, of describing it. But in a metaphorical sense, it means to shun. It means to have nothing to do with. That when you see these things, and he's going to list four of them, when you see these things, you're approaching these things you take a hard right 90 degrees and, and, and move around and have no interaction with, no intersection with these kinds of, these kinds of things. And he states it also in, in the present imperative to indicate that this wasn't just dealing with a 
momentary, unique situation in the Cretan church. It's a present tense, which means this is to be taken as instruction that is binding on the church as long as the church lives. This is instruction that the church is to maintain as a continuous practice. We as to believers are to always have this mindset that when we see strife, when we see divisions, we see them, we circumvent, we shun. And Paul lists four things in particular that must be avoided, and it's helpful to go through each one of these. First, he says, avoid, shun, have nothing to do with, Foolish controversies. Now, what does that mean? Well, it's interesting. That word for foolish, the adjective, is really the same word from which we get the word moronic. It means stupid. It's, it's moronic kind of controversies. And, and the word for controversy simply means matters of dispute. There's nothing that is in, in Paul's mind here as he deals with a, a topic. Paul, in this word, is not considering content. He's talking about a tactic a way of discussing things. Paul says, avoid these foolish controversies. And how we can understand that is this. These controversies, especially when you think of them in our own context, are those that come from an unhealthy preoccupation with matters that do not warrant such attention. And not only that, but it's also this aggression that insists that others must be preoccupied with the same topic doesn't matter what the topic is, but there will be those topics that just are not a matter of first priority. And, and some people will, will have a, an interest in those things, and by itself, nothing wrong with that. However, it rises to the level of a foolish controversy when someone takes that particular issue that's out there in the weeds somewhere and says, this is to me my hobby horse, and not only is it my hobby horse, but it must be yours as well. And if not, I'm going to fight you. And that sounds like it's, well, that's hypothetical, theoretical, but it can happen quite easily among Christians in Bible studies and personal conversations and social media and so on. This is important to me. This really small particular nuance, it's important to me, and I'm going to make it my flag, and if you don't agree with me and treat it in the same way that I do, I'm going to fight you until you do. And Paul says that is foolish. The emphasis here on this particular thing that must be avoided is on the tactics. He's not in this one concerned about the topic. He's going to get to that in, in some of the other ones here, but he's, he's emphasizing a particular tactic that can mark Christians. This idea of taking what is tertiary and raising it to the level of a priority, being obsessed with it, and then insisting that others share that obsession with the stake that if they don't, then you condemn and you judge and you battle and you fight. The second thing that Paul lists as something that must be avoided and shunned is What he describes is that which had to do with genealogies. Now, this one is a content matter, and and we don't know exactly what Paul is is getting at here. Certainly, Titus did. The Cretans would have understood what's going on, and 
I think the best way that we can understand it is what one commentator said when he described it this way. It was a Jewish type of interpretation based on Old Testament and extra-canonical stories of the biblical heroes, of the patriarchs, and so on. And it involved speculation based on family trees. So some, in some way, these, these teachers or these people in the church, and Paul has already referred to them, and we'll get to that in a, in a few moments. Paul has referred to them back in chapter 1. We went through that as we looked at verses 10 through 16. They, they would teach the law. They were, they were fascinated and they were drawn to these, these speculations of, of, of tracing certain lineages and so on and coming up from that with, with doctrine or assertions, principles, and so on. And Paul said, avoid that. Avoid that. Shun that. Why? It deviated from the focus of apostolic instruction. Paul had, had delivered the fundamentals of the faith. He had given to the church the things that were necessary for the building up of the body of Christ. And then you have this group of people in the church, and there's always this interest in the mysterious, in in hidden signs. And sometimes you might hear it in terms of numerology. There's this way of approaching the the text where you study the, the Hebrew letters, for example, and you count them, and then you come up with calculations and predictions and speculations that come from that, similar to what I think Paul is referring to here with genealogies. It distracts from the doctrine, and it, it, it emphasizes the speculative, mysterious, spiritualized reading of the biblical text where you leave behind the norming value of the language, what is actually said in the scriptures, and instead hypothesize from that something that is just not there at surface level. And Paul said, avoid that, shun that. And the emphasis here is on substance. These people in the church that uh, were, were starting to move through the church and have influence, they were teaching this kind of material, and, and Paul said, shun it. Shun this kind of speculation. A third is what he just calls strife. The word strife, what does this word mean? It means engagement in rivalry especially with reference to positions taken in a matter. You could translate it as strife or discord or contention. What this particular word describes is fighting for fighting's sake, always having the boxing gloves up, always dividing people into camps. You can read that in, in Paul's introduction to his letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians And he says, look, it's come to me from some in Chloe's household that there are people in the Corinthian church, which is just north of Crete, people in the Corinthian church that were causing these divisions. Some saying, I am of Paul. Others saying, I am of Cephas. Others saying, I am of Apollos. The kind of strife that Paul is talking about here is that desire to always divide people and always try to put people in categories and camps and then fight for fighting's sake. There are some people who are, who are like that. They just love to debate. They just feel that they're born to argue. And so in whatever conversation or relationship that they're in, they just have to go there. 
They're just not satisfied until they can create a division and separate themselves from the, the interlocutor and, and, and just create that, that distance, create that division. And Paul says, have nothing to do with it. And, and again, we must acknowledge that this is not something that is just characteristic of a few people that are out there, you know, some kind of personality that's, that's out there in the population. No, this is characteristic of all of us. In fact, if we go to Galatians chapter 5, where Paul describes the deeds of the flesh, something all of us have within the sinful flesh, the propensity toward, we find the same word used here for strife. Notice what Paul says. He says, now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, Idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, it's the same word, jealousy, and and so on. And we must acknowledge that each one of these words in this list of vices is present within our sinful flesh. We are capable of all of these things according to the flesh. And some tend to allow this to take root in their lives, and this particular deed of the flesh then becomes their, their flag. It becomes what they're known for, and they will even go to the extent of, of taking pride in the fact that they can sniff out a difference from a mile away. And they will waste no time in trying to identify that difference publicize that difference, and then divide over that difference. Again, the emphasis here is not on some kind of false teaching that Paul is addressing in this particular word. He's dealing with a tactic. He's dealing with a deed of the flesh. The fourth one that he lists here is what he calls disputes about the law. Disputes. This is, again, a term that refers to fighting. It's, it's used several places in the New Testament, but it always describes fighting without weapons. So, for example, we see the same word in James 4, verse 1, where James asks, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts or, or disputes? Same word used there. What is the source of quarrels and, and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? And this term is the opposite of, of what we would say would be peaceable. Now, if you look in chapter 3, you see the very opposite term that is used here in verse 2. Remember what Paul said as he, he started chapter 3, and he begins giving instruction for how we ought to live in this world of, of unbelievers, in this world of opponents, And he says this, he says, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. That word peaceable is the exact opposite of this word here for disputes. There are always those who who just want to fight all the time or are just, they prefer it. They may hold their tongue but internally, they're, they're just always on edge and, and ready to fight. And, and Paul says this kind of activity must be avoided. And he says it's a dispute about the law. Now here, what we do find is another content issue. In addition to speculation about genealogies, 
there were those in the Cretan church who were having these controversial debates over the Mosaic law, once again, probably due to speculative interpretations, due to excessive and obsessive devotion to rules and and regulations. And, And we've already seen that in this letter that Paul has had to deal with that. Turn, for example, to uh, Titus chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. Remember, in that section, Paul moved from giving the qualifications for elders to now, in, in verses 10 to 16, the way to deal with the, the false teachers. And he says this in, in verse 10. He says, For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. And then in verse 13, he says this, For this reason, reprove them severely so that you may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. Paul is referring back to that problem and that element within the church that was seeking to syncretize Pharisaical Judaism with Christianity and were obsessed with speculation or myths as well as with the commandments, the traditions of men, things added to the Scriptures, just like the Pharisees would do, added as applications. When applications of certain biblical truths are elevated to this level of authority that says, you must do exactly the way I do it when I apply this truth. So whether it's something related to giving, for example, you must give the same way that I give. And if not you are disobedient. So I give 10%. Therefore, you must give 10%. Or commands about certain things in the family or the household. I, you know, do this in my devotional time. You must as well. I do this in the raising of my children. You must as well. I've thrown my TV out. You must as well. Things like that that rise to this level of authority the same, in the same way that the Pharisees had applied the Old Testament law going beyond what was intended to create these traditions of men. And the Apostle Paul says this must be avoided. Here again is the emphasis on substance. Now, Paul does not leave this command without explanation. Notice what he then says in the end of verse 9. He gives a very simple reason why such a harsh approach needs to be taken by these things which tend to divide believers. He says it very simply, two reasons, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Two reasons why such factious discussions must be shunned. First of all, they are unprofitable. They they bring no advantage, even to such an extent that not only are they just without advantage, but they actually bring in harm. And then secondly, they are worthless. They have no use. They're empty. They're fruitless. They won't contribute to true edification. So avoid them. And that gives us a, a very good a paradigm, really, for evaluating some of the discussions that we get into. And again, Paul is, is not denying the importance of, of, of sound doctrine and the need to stand for the truth. But he is 
isolating this approach that is made up of both substance and tactics, both topics of discussion as well as methodology in discussing those things that Paul says should have nothing to do. Why? Because they are not edifying. They're not profitable. They don't bring anyone into greater conformity to Jesus Christ. They don't foster true Christian love. They don't expand the church's mission to the world. All it is is a lot of smoke and no light. And that's a way that we can look at it too. In, in terms of opportunities to, to, or, or, or moments when you have to decide, do I engage or do I shun? Do I engage or do I circumvent? Walk right around it. And one of the ways to look at it is, is using these two terms. Is it profitable and is it worthy? Will it contribute to my growth in, in the knowledge of Jesus Christ and conformity to his character? Does it, does it give me more information uh, t- about Christ? Uh, and is it going to reveal things in my life where I'm falling short of what has been revealed about him, where my life must reflect his image? Or is it something that just is going to take up time and create a lot of angst and lead you down a path where you're hating your brother more than before? Paul says, shun those discussions that are unprofitable and worthless. And again, this statement comes in direct contrast to what Paul has just stated in those previous verses. Again, you go back to those previous verses and you read read the virtues there about not maligning anyone, being peaceable, gentle, showing consideration for all men, being subject to rulers and being obedient. Then verse 8, doing good deeds. That's what Paul sought to foster in those churches and and factious conversations and topics and tactics will only undermine that purpose. This is not the only time where Paul had to deal with such things. In fact, what's interesting to note is that we find this in all of Paul's pastoral letters, not just in Titus. We find it in 1 Timothy and and 2 Timothy. For example, in, in 1 Timothy, Paul says much the same thing. In fact, he uses some of the same terminology. He says this, If anyone, this is chapter 6, verse 3 to 5, 1 Timothy, if anyone advocates a different doctrine, in other words, a a different teaching other than the apostolic standard, he says, if anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of of gain. In 2 Timothy, he has similar instruction. Writing again to Timothy, this is in 2 Timothy 2, verses 23 to 25, he says this, "...but refuse foolish and ignorant speculations." knowing that they produce quarrels. And the Lord's bondservant, the Lord's slave, must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, able to articulate truth, and patient when wronged with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading 
to the knowledge of the truth. That is the mindset that we are to have whenever we come across these kinds of arguments and debates where we see true brothers and sisters in Christ starting to divide over these things. We must pursue the kind of instruction that Paul has given, recognizing that he has called us to shun, to avoid those kinds of conversations that include topics and tactics that run contrary to the truth and and would seek to merely to 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 divide and to and to expound or expose disunity and hatred toward one another rather than to foster love and a solid understanding of the truth that's how we are to respond to factious conversations but now paul in verses 10 and 11 Transitions to deal with the factious man. Not only are we to circumvent and shun the conversations, but he says even we are to do this with the individual. And he gives some very serious instruction here in these verses. Let's begin, first of all, with the command that is given in verse 10. He said this, Reject a factious man after a first and second warning. Again, here we find at the beginning of our sentence in the English, the key word of the entire sentence that goes from verse 10 to the end of verse 11, reject, reject. And as was the case in verse 9, this verb as well is actually placed at the end of the clause. It really should read this way, a factious man after a first and second warning, reject. And again, this unusual word order indicates Paul's emphasis here and and probably indicates Paul's pastoral passion. He is worked up about these things. He does not treat this lightly. A factious man, after a first and second warning, reject. And the verb for reject means to refuse someone. It's used in other contexts, even to communicate the idea of to dismiss and to drive out. And so in this context, Paul is calling upon Titus to drive out from the fellowship, remove from the fellowship, excommunicate the one who is engaged in this kind of strife, sowing the seeds of discord and disunity, that after a first and a second warning, to remove him from the fellowship. And again, it is a present tense imperative which indicates that this is not just dealing with a one-time individual, some unique situation there on the island of Crete that is never to be repeated again. Instead, this is an ongoing instruction for the church. The church is to apply this throughout its life, wherever a factious man has been encountered and encountered. And I will say this, it's not just men as we're going to look at it, it's also women fit in this category as well. Now let's look at that a little bit in more detail. Paul says reject a factious man. What is Paul referring to there? And what's interesting is that the Greek word that we translate here as factious, the adjective, really is the word from which we derive the, 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 the word heretic, it's the Greek word from which we get the word heretic. So Paul really says, reject a heretical man. Now certainly, we know that term heretic 
in a formal sense, to refer to anyone who teaches an unorthodox gospel. Someone who denies the Trinity, for example, we will call a, a heretic. Someone who denies salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we will call a heretic. But we use that term uh, heretic in the sense in which it later developed in church history. In Paul's time, and we must be careful not to read anachronistically, in Paul's time, the term heretic described one who caused divisions, one who created factions. That's how Paul uses the term. Such a person is a heretic. Now, again, we note that false teachers, those who taught false doctrine, were operating there in the Cretan context. Paul deals with them, as I've already said, in in chapter 1, verses 10 to 11. You go back and read that. There were those who were upsetting whole households, and they were to be rebuked and told to stop teaching. But Paul's emphasis here is not just on false teaching. It's on false conduct. In Paul's mind, the term heretic didn't just refer to someone who who didn't teach the truth, who taught error. It refers to someone who didn't live the right way and, and who had a certain kind of negative, acidic influence on the people of God. That person is a heretical man. And he says, reject such a person after a warning. The warning here is a, is a strong word to refer to, a, to counsel that is given to, to someone to cease an improper course of conduct. In other words, what Paul is referring to here is a, is a formal pastoral warning. Stop it. Stop it. You are engaging in a conduct that is not proper for the people of God. It's not proper for your own testimony, and it's not healthy for the church, and it's damaging to the witness that we have in the world. So stop it. And Paul says here, reject such a man, remove him from the fellowship. Notice this, after a first and second warning. So it goes like this, you reprove him or her once, and then you reprove him or her again. And these are formal warnings. And then after that second one, if that person continues to maintain that that direction, that course of activity, then you remove. Reprove, reprove, and then remove. Now, you might look at that, and, and it's good if you do, you might look at that and say, well, that's three steps. Didn't Jesus teach four? So what's, what's the difference here? And in fact, we can look at Matthew 18. Just for a moment, we see some of the same kinds of, of ideas that come through in, in, in Jesus' instruction to the church about how to deal with those caught in sin. But there's a little bit of a difference here. But let's go through this. Matthew 18, verses 15 to, to 17. Jesus gives this instruction. He says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have one your brother over. There's the first step, private, personal interaction. And this already is showing that it's a little bit of a different scenario than what Paul is dealing with in the situation in Crete, where it's something that is public. It involves the whole body of Christ. It's involving different people in the church. What Jesus is dealing with here is a a sin that first occurs in, in a private relationship. Go and 
and reprove your brother or sister. And if he listens, it's over. You've done your job. But then, if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Second step, take someone else. But then the third step is public, very public. If he or she refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And then, after it's been told to the church, and the church as a body has the opportunity to go and to reprove and and to beg and to plead that they would repent of their sin and turn and, and, and confess and pursue godliness, that then if he refuses to listen, even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Remove him from the fellowship and treat him as an unbeliever who needs to hear the gospel. Treat him as one who has not been saved. Because that person, after so many admonitions, is living the life of an unbeliever. But Paul says in the Cretan context, with someone who sows strife, who is who is uh, acidic to the whole congregation, who is sowing seeds of division, in that case, three steps are sufficient. Reprove, reprove again, and then remove. And what that instruction indicates is that there is a particular corrosiveness a unique danger that is associated with those engaging in the sin of strife that is unlike other sins. That when there are those heretics in the congregation, and I'm not, again, I'm not just referring to heretics in terms of teaching, but heretics in terms of tactics, in dividing, in fighting, that there is a unique corrosiveness to that that must be dealt with quickly so that the whole church is not divided and 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 cast into all kinds of of different sects and camps. Pastor John explains some of the, the seriousness of this divisiveness when he writes this in his commentary in 1 Corinthians relating to the problem there in, in Corinth in this issue. He said this, What the Lord laments and opposes, Satan applauds and fosters. Few things demoralize, discourage, and weaken a church as much as bickering, backbiting, and fighting among its members. Because of quarreling, the father is dishonored, the son is disgraced, his people are demoralized and discredited, and the world is turned off and confirmed in unbelief. Fractured fellowship robs Christians of joy and effectiveness, robs God of glory, and robs the world of a true testimony of the gospel a high price for an ego trip. Or perhaps how Spurgeon put it, summarizes it best, Satan greatly approves of our railing at each other, but God does not. And as a result, God, through the pen of the Apostle Paul, leaves the church with very clear instructions of how to deal with a person intent on rejecting pastoral admonitions and intent on spreading division and creating divisions within the body of Christ. This is, again, serious in Paul's mind. He dealt with it also with 
the Thessalonians. He said this in 2 Thessalonians 3.14, If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Again, that rejection of apostolic teaching and that refusal to listen to admonition is not something to take lightly, but instead warrants very severe and and, and strict response. Now again, as in the first command, in verse 9, Paul provided a justification for such a serious action, and he does so in this sentence as well. Verse 11 contains the explanation for why such a serious approach is taken to a factious man. Paul says this, verse 11, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. He is perverted, and that word means to turn aside, to cause to turn aside from what is true or morally proper. We could translate it this way. He is warped. It describes a settled state. That person, that man or woman has been admonished formally, once and then again and still persists. And Paul says, you know what, even after that admonishment to stop dividing the people of God, that that person is in a settled state. He or she is perverted. And he goes on to say this, not only is he or she perverted, but he is sinning. The, the, The repeated resistance of pastoral warning is just a manifestation of the true state of his or her heart. And so Paul says, as a result, that person is self-condemned. In the end, he or she has only himself or herself to blame. That person has received grace through repeated warning, formal warning once, formal warning twice. But that person insists in rejecting that pastoral warning and in sowing the seeds of disunity. So that person's consequence or fate comes only from what he or she has done. He or she is self-condemned. Strong words that testify to the importance of unity and how we must always not just avoid factions and factious people, but work diligently in preserving the unity of the body of Christ. As we close, some, some self-examination here that I want to leave you with as uh, you consider the application of this text to your own life personally. Number one, are you a person who regularly finds himself or herself embroiled in controversy? And look at your relationships now, even in your family, or look at your relationships in your Bible study Uh, here at the church and in other places, even in the secular work environment? Are you someone who's always in the middle of some battle? Always controversy is swirling around you. That says something. That is not a good place to be. And, And you need to take serious inventory of your life and ask the question, why does controversy follow me around Well, why am I always in the midst of it? What am I doing? Lord, open my eyes. Convict me. Show me. Number two, do you enjoy debating for the sake of debating? Now, there are some of those who who love the polemics and they can handle it well, but for the most part, we cannot handle polemics well. 
It needs to be done. There are times where we must certainly put our necks down on the line in order to stand for truth. But are you someone who just loves to do that, not even for the sake of Christ, not even for the sake of the, the topic for which you, are, which you are defending, but just because you like the battle? You like the fight. You like to have the boxing gloves on. It's just such a good feeling. Again, if that describes who you are, that you enjoy leading conversations to a debate because you like the adrenaline, you have to see how that is a manifestation of the deeds of the flesh, which loves strife and envy and jealousy and arguments. Number three, Are the topics you debate tertiary issues that you have elevated to a matter of first importance? And again, here it takes a whole church to help balance us out because sometimes what I might think is important really isn't, and I need pastors and elders, other brothers and sisters around me to balance that out and say, hey, that's an interesting topic, but that's not the most important thing. We can easily fall into biases and and what we call confirmation bias when we just look at everything through our grid and, and read everything through our hobby horse. And we need people in our lives to come alongside us and say, you know what, that's not that important. And when they do, we need to listen. We need to listen to them. Be careful about elevating matters of secondary, third importance to issues that would be above the most cardinal aspects of the gospel itself. Fourth, are you quick to turn aggressive and disparaging in theological discussions or spiritual discussions, discussions about the Christian life? Uh, Do they set you off? In other words, you'll, you'll start talking about something. Maybe it's the Trinity. Maybe it's the nature of Christ. Maybe it's some hermeneutical topic. And immediately, as soon as the discussion arises, You are aggressive, you're not gentle, you're not patient. Again, if that's you, take serious inventory and ask, where is the gentleness that Paul talks about in 2 Timothy chapter 2? And all of us know, all of us are in this category. We know when we were first saved, boy, our theology was bad. We were not saved because of our theology. We were saved in spite of it. And it's taken so far for us to grow, and we're so thankful for those very gracious people along the way who have held our hand, who have corrected us gently, who have shown us time and patience. And then for us to turn around and someone says something a little off balance, a little unorthodox even, and we know they're growing, and yet we pounce, and we take it as an opportunity to string them out publicly humiliate them and say, you should know better. We need the the gentleness and meekness of Christ in his endurance and patience with his disciples. As we often say, someone like Peter who had a foot-shaped mouth for how many times his foot was in his mouth. And yet the Lord used him in such amazing ways. Let's have patience with people. And finally, Have you received but rejected the counsel of others to stop biting the sheep? So maybe you have had some of these warnings. Uh, Maybe someone 
a pastor even, or a Bible study leader, or just another brother and sister of Christ has said, hey, tone it down. They've given you a warning, and, and yet you've just rejected it. Let me, let me warn you uh, that the amount of, of warnings will run out, and at some point it will be time to remove. So take those admonitions seriously. When people challenge us, let's, let's not just immediately resist, but instead believe that the person loves us and take careful inventory of our lives and seek to apply that kind of admonition. I want to leave you with just a a final statement from John Newton. He wrote a great article uh, in one of his letters. It's actually a letter he wrote to a pastor or a young man. I don't know if the man was a pastor or not. And it's just called On Controversy. I wish I could have just read that letter for this Uh, this discussion, but we don't have time for that. But he wrote a a letter to a young man who is engaged in controversy. Uh, You can find this letter online. Just Google it, On Controversy, John Newton. It's well worth your read. And he contains several points there of admonition to this young man who is engaged in all kinds of controversy. I want to read one paragraph, and we'll close with this. John Newton writes, quote, And yet we find but very few writers or participants in controversy who have not been manifestly hurt by it. Either they grow in a sense of their own importance or imbibe an angry, contentious spirit, or they insensibly withdraw their attention from those things which are the food and immediate support of the life of faith and spend their time and strength upon matters which are at most but of a secondary value. This shows that if the service is honorable, it is dangerous. Speaking of the need for theological discernment, it is honorable, but it's dangerous. What will it profit a man if he gains his cause and silences his adversary, if at the same time he loses that humble, tender frame of spirit in which the Lord delights and to which the promise of his presence is made. Let's pray. Father, as we are confronted with this text, we confess that strife is in our flesh. And we all can acknowledge the many, many times regularly when the easiest option for us is to argue, debate, to debate, and to divide. We thank you for this text and that it confronts us and reminds us of the preciousness of unity and how your your design, your will for your people, those who are truly yours, would be that we live in harmony with one another and we tangibly manifest love, forgiveness, patience, and this tender frame of spirit in which you delight. May you make us that kind of people, giving us the discernment we need to know when to stick our necks out and to be ready to be burned at the stake for truth and when to be silent, when to speak up, and when also to exercise much grace and understanding, knowing that it is ultimately you who change our minds, you who bring to us 
right understanding. It is a work of your spirit that is done, and not something that we can simply accomplish through heated debates and wrangling over words. Again, Father, we pray, make us this kind of tender people, we ask, in the name of Jesus Christ and for the sake of the spread of his glory around the world. Amen.